Hey everyone, this is Mary. I'm so excited for you to hear today's episode with Kayla. We talk about Melody and Detroit and her world, fan fiction and timeshares. Yes, somehow all of this does make sense, um, I promise. It was such a fun episode to record. It's so fun to get to talk to people about American Girl and their memories of it. And with that in mind, I'm so excited to share that we have our first book event to announce on Thursday, November 9th. We will be at Boston Public Library to talk about our book, Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit American Girl, and answer your questions and sign your copies of the book. Um, We'll be doing this with Trident Bookstore. Uh, We are so excited to get out there and meet some of you and any of you who couldn't show up. I know it's during the week and everyone has crazy lives and are busy, but it's just really fun for us to think about having our own version of the Eros tour minus the Carly class drama. Um, You know, will Carly attend? I don't know, but we'll see. Only time will tell. I'll be there. So I hope you will be too. And we'll be announcing more book events as we get closer to the launch date. Thanks to everyone who's ordered their copy so far. If you still want to order a copy, you can go on our website, dollsofourlivespod.com or order it from any independent or other bookseller of your choice. We'll be doing an audiobook, and we're just genuinely so excited to get together with you and talk all things American Girl. Thanks, and now on to the episode. So recently this week, we got tagged a lot in a post that felt very important and very relevant. You know, Samantha Mary Parkinson is not with us anymore, but her house is still standing. And I guess what we, you know, brought you here today to ask is if you would be willing to make a lifelong investment in a timeshare in Samantha's house in Mount Kisco, New York, for the low price of $100,000 to earn one weekend there a year. I think I can start a GoFundMe to make this happen. I'm in. I'm 100% in. Okay, cool. And to be clear, like, are you going to fund just yourself, your timeshare? Like, are you funding our timeshare in that house? I think we can, like, split the time between the three of us and have a good time by me funding it. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. That's what we needed. That's, you know, some people are saying the real estate market's a hellscape, but you've just described (laughs) a dream. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Welcome everyone to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. I do not own any real estate in Mount Kisco, just to be clear. Not yet. Not yet. I mean, that's what I'm hearing. And who do we have with us, Allison? We are so excited to be joined today by Kayla, who is a, I don't want to say lifelong American Girl fan, probably didn't start in the womb, but a fan of American Girl who has reached out to us in the past about other characters and was the first person who came to mind when we were covering Melody because you are an expert on many things Detroit. Yes, thank you. It's nice to be here. We're so excited to have you here. And, you know, you've written us about different characters, but you're the main character on this episode. Just going to say that up top. Oh, my goodness. It's my dream. This is my dream. So thank you. Okay. And like, look, did you demand a bowl of M&Ms off air before we began? Yes. And then you said women should make more demands and you were joking, but I don't think you were joking about that part. And I agree with you 110%. I I think that all women need to just be more upfront about the things they need, including brown M&Ms. So. You know what? During Leo season, it's really powerful that you would bring that energy to the show. So I just respect that. I don't know what sign you are. Oh, I am a Capricorn. <gasps> oh, wow. Just like yeah, Melody. Okay. Yes. Wow. Wow. So much coming together here. So before we get into, we want to kind of talk to you about your own American Girl story and then kind of talk about drawing your expertise on Detroit to talk about how Detroit figures in pop culture and in these books. But before we do that, we always try to share things that we're enjoying in pop culture. Is there anything that you're taking in that's kind of like lighting you up for good or ill? Ooh, um, I just recently read Emily Henry's book, um, Happy Place. Which oh, cool. I, as a person who usually engages in, like, I write spooky things and I write about history a lot, it was nice to just have, like, a story about people being in love, living in Vermont for a week. Sounded great. 
I really loved it. Uncomplicated joy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have been hate watching and just like that. Um, (laughs) Yep. It's yeah. I don't even hate it anymore. I've just. Wow. That's a really (laughs) cool take. Um, I have found it to be. I have a lot of thoughts on it mainly that I feel like none of the characters that came over from Sex in the City are the same characters as they were. Yeah. Um, and I wish the show was more about like Lisa Turtle Wexley and Che Diaz. That's the show che I casa, want. Su Casa? Si. Claire Quisi. Wow. 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 Like powerful take. Allison, are you still watching? And just like that, I take it. I am still watching 90 Day Fiance and I am still watching and just like that. And I think you're right that they're making the old characters new and they have new characters who they're trying to get us to feel are very established. I will say like, I don't want to give any spoilers. I'm happy that we're sticking with Che because I think that actor is so phenomenal that I'm just enjoying kind of watching it play out and I really like, I'm a Charlotte fan. I don't know that I'm a supporter of Charlotte, but I always appreciate her plot lines. And Mm -hmm. I'm willing to watch another 10 years of her bumble through life with a lot of money. Fair enough. Kayla, where are you at? Like, who are you you supporting? Um, I think I will stick with also a Charlotte fan, at least in this series. I think she is bringing a lot of interesting energy to the table as she is moving through life in her 50s. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, we like sort of a chaotic narrative for, you know, women in their 50s. Like, where are those other, where are other shows that are doing that? Or, you know, is any other show even attempting to do what's happening on and just like that? I'm going to say no, maybe by choice, but it's providing a service. It's out here telling stories. I think the Miranda plotline is getting somewhere near real, like something that could feel realistic. I don't know, but that Miranda's really been on a real journey on this, on this show. So I guess we'll have to stay tuned. I don't know. I mean, have you guys been following what happened last week when Carly class showed up at the errors tour? Cause that's the drama that's really been like defining my week. No, what happened? I I wish I could ask that question. Like, I wish I was in a sane enough place where I didn't know 18 things about this. Like, I am jealous you, of you, Kayla, Allison. that you're able to. <laughs> Why? Because Kayla knows peace. Because you, yeah. you perhaps know an inner peace that I do not, which is I feel a bit exhausted. Like, I work weekends like Taylor Swift. I'm not saying that we're the same. I don't make $13 million per, like, thing that I do. I go to bed, you know, earlier perhaps than most on Friday and Saturday to get through my weekend of work. And I have spent every weekend for five months with Taylor Swift performing four hours a night on TikTok. And honestly, we all needed a break. Am I three weeks postpartum like Carly? No. I'm just going to say this. If you are three weeks postpartum and you're willing to get on a cross-country flight to stand up for five hours at a Taylor Swift show, there's something going on. And I am just going to leave it there. But the fact that I had to work the next day when I just wanted to go down a million internet rabbit holes and just, you know, hear from people, people on the street. And by that, I mean, TikTok, people operating with no sense or research. I mean, I was entertained. If nothing else, it's nice when the internet feels like there's that moment where people are all interested in something and it's not necessarily making your life better, but it's just a source of, to your point, uncomplicated joy. I mean, that was my romance novel book for last week, real or not. And, you know, I'm just saying, look into it, Kayla. Maybe don't look into it. It sounds like you're a mature person <laughs> who knows peace. And I don't want to wreck that for you, but... Also, like, maybe I want to wreck that for you. I don't know. I think this can be, like, a great opportunity to do some research and go down, like, dig a lot into a rabbit hole that I haven't explored. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then email me. And then I'll be like, where are you at? Do you feel safe? Do you have questions? Let's get into it. Thank you. I need that. There was an unwise child that I think is central to all of our lives who once asked a British refugee to play bomb shelter. 
And I think that's kind of what it's probably like <laughs> to be Taylor Swift's Don't friend. Don't bring Molly McIntyre right? So this. I'm saying like, I think the way that the Molly McIntyre, Emily Bennett dynamic, also Bennett the dog dynamic oh, wow. is baffling. I think there's some of that with Harry Styles, Taylor Swift, and Carly Kloss. I think that those triangulations like make sense together. If I mm-hmm. recall correctly, Kayla, like you came into our lives when we were covering Molly. Yes, I was. I did. So let's get into your American Girl story. So how did you, American Girl come into your life? Was Molly part of it? And if so, you know, she would have liked to have played a starring role, I'm sure. Is that the role she played in your life? Yeah, Molly still has a quite prolific role in my life, I will say. So I first encountered American Girl when I was in first grade. There was an opportunity to start reading chapter books, and I picked up Meet Samantha and immediately fell in love. Like, this was exactly the sort of thing I wanted to read, and I was hooked, and I was like, I have to read more of these books. Um, And I think my parents were just happy that I had an interest that was educational. So they were all in, let's dive in. And they ended up buying me Molly. And this is the American girl I still have. And my friends will tell you that my Molly doll is cursed. Why? Um, (laughs) Kayla, this is like late breaking. Yes. Oh my God, wow. So she... Sometime after I purchased her, her skin started like turning verdigris. And at the time you could just mail your dolls back and they could like replace the heads and things like that. But in my little empathetic seven-year-old heart, I knew that if I sent her to the American Girl place, she wouldn't be the same. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to hurt her feelings. So I kept her. But then she started turning more and more green And then when I got my first apartment with my roommate, she would sit on a little shelf and one of her eyes was starting to like not close properly. And (laughs) it would just feel this eerie feeling in the room every time you were there. So right now she lives in a box. She does not come out unless it is a special occasion. You know, Molly can come out whenever she wants or she doesn't have to come out. I think that's an important message for listeners, but I, I'm stunned by this account of your doll turning green. <laughs> like I've never heard that before. And like, when you said like, is there like things happening in your apartment where you're like, like a door is creaking open and you're like, what's going on? It's like, Molly's upset. We won't play band of brothers. Like what's going on? <laughs> like, like what's the vibe? Like, what are some, are there any like instances of things going left? There was a moment where my former roommate and I went through a phase where we were watching YouTube videos about cursed dolls. And then we looked over and it looked like Molly had kind of started to get a little bit of shadow growing on her face. And that was the moment we said, we got to put her in a box. Like we're going to put her away. That was the smart thing to do. I support you. That would have, I mean, I couldn't bring myself to watch those videos first of all, because I wouldn't sleep. They were quite terrifying. They were horrifying. Are you close to her now? Like, is she in the room with you? She's not currently in the room with me, but she is often nearby when I am at home. Okay. Like, will she listen to this episode with or without you? She might listen to it without me. She might be a little bit offended that I called her verdigree, but hopefully she'll be okay. She can move on from it. The Shrek effect. Oh my God. Wow. What a, what an origin story. And to kind of take you back to like childhood Kayla for a second, like what did you make of the book? Like, did it for us, like it really got us interested in history and it was such a bridge to people in our lives. Is that like, was it similar for you? Was it different? Absolutely. It was very similar. I was reading these books and then suddenly I wanted to learn everything there was to learn about the 1940s. And that obsession kind of led me into a public history career Um, Just specifically like loving Molly books, wanting to learn more about the 40s. But then also as an African-American woman growing up in the 90s and 2000s, there weren't a lot of black dolls on the market. 
So my parents were very adamant that we also had Addie in our home and then Kaya in our home as well. So I was reading Mm. these books as well as introductions to issues of enslavement and issues of indigenous people. And it was really setting me on this path to learning more about the places that I come from and that this country comes from. Like, is Melody a character because of her proximity to where you grew up? Like, is she a character that you wish you had? I absolutely think so, especially because I was talking with my grandmother about this. My grandmother is the same age as Melody's uh, uh, nearest sister. And a lot of the stories that are involved with Melody and even just like the location she's at and which library she goes to are things that I was able to talk to my family about having been in and around Detroit my whole life. And it would have been such a great experience to have somebody who was so based Mm -hmm. in the place that I'm from and give that place pride, especially growing up in that area in the 90s and 2000s, that there wasn't a lot of pride in Detroit. It would have been nice to have some sort of object that would have represented that pride. Absolutely. I mean, we've heard from other African-American or Black listeners about owning an Addie doll. Like, I'm wondering, was that complicated for you when you had an Addie doll, when you were given an Addie? Like, what role, if any, did that play in your life? It definitely did feel very complicated for me. One of the things that, as a Black person who grew up in a mostly white area, in kind of suburban metro area, I really struggled with my identity and having a physical representation of slavery right in front of me in my house and having that be the doll of history that we talk about kind of always felt a little unfair to me. And there were parts of like owning Addie that were interesting. Like she had kinky hair. And so her hair was harder to braid than Molly's was, for example, Um, I think the earlier dolls had kind of like a gap in her teeth that the other dolls didn't necessarily have. And it represented a little bit of some stereotyping about African-Americans. So as a girl growing up, it felt very complicated. I didn't know if I appreciated her as much as I do now as an adult. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something too, that not only having Melody as a doll based in your hometown, but having a doll who's African-American, whose life has so much joy at the center of it, in addition to being associated with like our national trauma of slavery. I mean, I think that might have changed the calculus, too, because so much of Addie's story is grounded in so much trauma. I'm sure like that's really complicated, too, as you're saying. Absolutely. Um, There aren't a lot of stories, even in fiction, that are about Black people, especially Black girls experiencing joy thinking about like Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry being a seminal novel that is about a Black girl's life experience. And the book ends with an attempted lynching and the Klan showing up at the house. It's a consistent narrative of all of the difficult things that are, that exist about being Black, as opposed to Melody's book, which is about you know, the joy and resistance, the joy in the music, the joy in the church, the joy in the community mm-hmm. that exists. Now, you were an adult when she came out like we were. And so what kind of drew you to actually- Sorry, my up? partner just- You're Sorry, fine? my partner just walked in and waved. Hey, what's up? Cameo. <laughs> or it's Molly come to life. Hello, partner. <laughs> Daniel, uh, Mary, and Allison say hello. Hello, Mary and Allison. <laughs> hey, Daniel. Is Daniel up? I feel like we're afraid friends. of Molly? Uh, Daniel, are you afraid of Molly? Um, it's a safe space. You can tell the truth. I'll just let that float in the air. He, the the he said he will leave that float in the air for the rest of the conversation. He's going to leave it unanswered. Keila, if I may, you are a yeah. good storyteller. And if you made up that story about Molly, props. I, I swear I did not. <laughs> Because you are a good writer. I have read your writing. And so if that story was made up, I love it. If it wasn't made up, I also love it. And I'm afraid for you. But what led you as an adult, right? Like working in the public history space to pick up the Melody book? Like, was there a particular reason or it was just kind of the draw of this is a local person and a local kind of phenomenon people are talking about? I think it was kind of mostly that it was this local draw to the extent that 
the one of the malls that was near Detroit set up an American Girl pop-up store just because Melody came out. And there was like a whole Melody section and it was a really cool experience. But I think also just as a public historian, being able to have that like physical book in my hand and being able to go back to younger kids and say, hey, the things we're talking about in this history, you can read about in this book. Um, Mm. I was also very interested in the way the authors would portray Detroit as well. I mean, did you think growing up of yourself in a place like Detroit as like, I guess when I was growing up, I grew up outside Hartford. I never really thought about that place as a place that had its own history. I don't know why. I just like thought about the books I was reading were more national focused, I guess, or other places except where I lived. Like, did you think about Detroit as a place that had so much history? Like, were you aware of it? Yeah, I think that part of my thinking through the Detroit story was two kind of major things happened. One is that my dad was very young during the Detroit 1967 uprising. And so that was a conversation that we would have all the time where he would tell his memories of being a four-year-old experiencing that. And then I was, I think, seven or eight when Detroit celebrated its 300th birthday. So it was this big celebration and there were fireworks and there were parades and there was all of this Detroit pride happening. So Mm. those were the ways that I was really thinking about Detroit's history but it always just felt like it had always been this way and it always would be this way. Of course, now it's 100% different than it used to be, but it really did kind of in a lot of ways feel like this is what Detroit is and how it will be. Could you talk for people who maybe don't have a frame of reference what was going on in Detroit in 1967? I'll say, honestly, I don't know that I would have known anything if I hadn't seen an exhibit in Detroit. And it's something that I kept thinking about while I was reading Melody, that when we're going with her through 1963 and 1964, her teenage years are about to change pretty dramatically, right? Like if we were to continue with her through the next four or so years, could you talk about maybe what really happened and maybe how that would have been filtered through the eyes of someone like Melody, who would have been by that point about 14 or 15 years old? Yeah, for sure. So Up until 1967, Detroit was considered by the national audience as a model city on racial integration, that it had kind of left behind the scars of the 1943 race riot that happened um, in the summer of 1943. But underneath all of that, rah, rah, Detroit is doing great. There was a lot of issues happening. So the major Detroit neighborhood Black Bottom had been torn down in an urban renewal push to create freeways. So a lot of the African-Americans who were living and working in that area got displaced and moved to a different neighborhood. And a lot of them ended up in the neighborhood where the 67 uprising went, where the 67 uprising happened. There was policing policies that were very, very violent, particularly towards young Black men. So a lot of times, if you talk to people who were alive in Detroit in the 1960s, they'll talk about this policing unit called the Big Four, where four officers would ride around and threaten to beat up anyone they saw standing on the corner. And they would just violently attack these young men and women. And there was a very contentious relationship with the suburbs as more of the manufacturing that had been in the city moved out to the suburbs. And a lot of the suburban areas near Detroit, particularly Dearborn is one that people talk about a lot, which is where Ford factory is today, were antithetical to the idea of African-Americans living and existing in these places. And so these tensions boiled over in July of 1967 when a young Vietnam veteran was returning and he was at a party at a speakeasy, basically. We call them blind pigs in Detroit. And this party was in this illegal bar and some police came to arrest the folks inside of the bar. And as they were arresting people, there was a lot of commotion. People came out in the street 
And then somebody threw a brick into the back of a police car and it just boiled over into all of the tensions that had been going on in the city for decades at this point. It was an uprising that lasted seven days. And to many people, it was the thing that defined Detroit for the past 50 years. This is the thing that everyone, when they think about Detroit, they're thinking about Detroit on fire. They're thinking about the policing. They're thinking about all of the things that are associated with the 67 uprising. Wow. Um, that, I mean, that history was so incredible. Thank you. I feel like you just gave me like such a great frame to even rethink about the melody books that we've read. Um, you know, unfortunately so much of what I think I and other people know from Detroit is like from pop culture depictions of Detroit. And I wonder if you've like thought about that and are there any, like, what do you think people get wrong about Detroit and pop culture, like movies, TV shows, whatever, what do you think people have gotten right? Ooh, that's a great question. I think that um, a lot of things that people get wrong are just the general like lack of community and just violence. So I'm thinking about a movie like Gran Torino, which is set in Detroit. Mm. And I know that Clint Eastwood had his agendas about how he wanted to tell that story. But that's a movie that portrays Detroiters as just ready to jump on you, ready to fight ready to throw down. And the lone white man who has stayed in this neighborhood <laughs> since the fifties is the only thing between us and chaos. Um, who? Yeah. <laughs> um, white savior narratives always, you know, they're still in our movies all the time. Constantly. Um, and so to me, when I look at that movie, I just think, you know, when I, when I'm with the people who I love in Detroit, there's camaraderie, there's joy, there's always tension, but there's tension in every city you can go to, every suburb you can go to, every small town you can go to. Um, I think that a lot of times people don't give Detroit respect in terms of its place in the general zeitgeist of the United States. Like in the 1920s, Detroit was the rum running capital. Whenever there are like mm. movies set in the 20s, and they're like, it's Chicago, it's New York. No, it was Detroit. Most of the liquor was getting uh, that was illegal was flowing through from Windsor into Detroit and then spread throughout the country. Um, I think that people don't realize how much, how or I don't think people realize how many people are actually from Detroit that have changed culture. A lot of times people just focus on Motown. And even that is not necessarily true. And I know we're talking about Melody and her books really do focus a lot on Motown, but Detroit is also the home of punk. It's the home of techno. It's the home of actually a lot of ragtime music back in the at the turn of the century. Um, it really is this eclectic, wonderful place that I think people kind of poo-poo. Wow. I've heard so many states and towns try to take ownership of the home of punk. <laughs> so I'm like happy to know that it's Detroit. Thank you. We have, we are home of MC5 and Iggy Pop and the Stooges. And both of those know. bands blew open the door. Did you watch when Iggy Pop performed when Madonna was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I did. Did one of her songs as a <laughs> punk song? <laughs> That was kind of a wild moment. I don't know what you make of that. I mean, you also, I mean, Detroit, home of Madonna as well. We, one time when I was giving a tour in the museum I worked at, which I think, Allison, that's the museum you visited, Detroit Historical yes. Society. Yeah. Right. Um, I was giving a tour there and I was talking about Madonna. And then one of our guests just turns to me and goes, actually, I was her teacher in middle school and she was a what? pretty good student. Yeah. I was like, oh. What? How did you continue the tour after that? I slowly, <laughs> calmly tried to keep it down. And I was like, I have 50,000 questions for you, sir. Oh, my God. I've, of course. I mean, that's the only sane response is to be like, I have 50 follow-up questions right now. Oh, my God. Wow. We were going to ask you a highlight of, you know, being part of Detroit Historical Society, but you can politely skip that question if you feel like <laughs> you just covered it. I think that, I mean, that was definitely a highlight. Um, but I think also talking about the 67 uprising and just having these wonderful conversations with people who were there in the city of Detroit and how it impacted them, whether they moved out of the city when it happened, they have memories of seeing smoke on the horizon. They have memories of their 
dad driving and getting stopped by the police. Um, one man, he was actually born during the uprising and he was telling a story about how his dad had to get a special escort during a curfew time so that he could go see his brand new son being born. Just wow. all of these amazing stories that people have kept and never felt they could share and being able to have those that space to share those stories now. That's really powerful. I mean, wow. I mean, I think that is, there's there's not enough local support for local history. And it's like, when you hear stories like that, it just reminds you that's like, it's so incredibly important to support your local historical society, even like that's such a great opportunity for anyone who's listening, who's interested in history. Like you can volunteer there. You can have these experiences and like be close to those archives and help make sure that they're inclusive, et cetera, et cetera. So just wanted to put in that plug because I feel like people don't know, like you can go volunteer there and like work with cool people like you. Yeah. We love having people who are interested in local history coming up. It's great. Um, you know, we want to kind of pivot and talk about Melody if we can, but I want to begin by following up on something you mentioned before about Motown, because Motown is like kind of a major character in these books in a way that is and is not surprising about the setting of the books, I guess. But I guess, like, what do you make of the portrayal of Motown in at least the first Melody book and sort of like how Motown gets weaponized as part of our national history? Like, how is it sort of like falsely portrayed sometimes or like maybe misunderstood? Like all it like to me, it's a very complicated subject. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things about Motown is that I think it gets it gets put on at this pedestal of this great pop culture moment because it was like the music was amazing and you know these songs were fantastic but it was a business and Barry Gordy ran that business like a business he really was thinking coming from the factory this is a this is an assembly line for music so I think that a lot of times the way we think about Motown and even the way the book portrays Motown is it's this place where you open the door and like, there's just music coming from everywhere and there's just right. do up and people are just jumping in. Like I can totally sing back up over here. Um, but there were like mob connections. There was all of this crazy stuff happening with Motown. Um, but I also think that it is an important piece of history, um, both in Detroit, but also just nationally as an African-American business that had such a global impact on right. the way music was produced, on the way artists were portrayed, but also thinking about the way that like blackness was erased in some of the early days of Motown where artists didn't feel that they could be very upfront and open about their blackness or when artists were going on tour in the South, they would have to stay in people's homes because they weren't allowed to stay at these hotels. And yet it was always portrayed as this beautiful, glamorous life when you see it on the TV or when you hear about it later. Right. I mean, I forget his name now, Aaron, I'm not going to remember, but the person who made the first season of Slow Burn, his new podcast is about Michael Jackson with another black music journalists, and I'm going to get their names after, but um, I have the worst memory in the world, but they interviewed early Motown execs on an early episode. And they kind of talk about what you were just describing that for a lot of the artists, they wanted to speak out about civil rights and they were told you can't because you have to, you know, present this, you know, palatable appearance while at the same time, really breaking a lot of boundaries being a black business. So it is kind of an interesting juxtaposition at the same time. For sure. I think that it has this complicated legacy, especially now that we have more of these stories and we know what was going on, um, you know, to quote Marvin Gaye. <laughs> wow. Did you plan that or you just you can just do that? I can just pull up Marvin Gaye songs off the top of my wow. head. <laughs> so this the show I was talking about is called Think Twice, Michael Jackson, and it's on Audible by Leon Nefke and Jay Smooth. So I want to make sure I get their names right. But it is it is really sad, but really interesting. Because you think about like Melody sings back up on her brother's song, spoiler alert. And it's like, you think about Michael Jackson being a child in that same space. 
And, you know, it's like the Melody book seems so pure compared to like what was going on behind the scenes in some case with like child labor, et cetera. Yeah. I was recently rewatching the Jackson's The American Dream <gasps> miniseries from 1992. Um, Iconic. In my house, that was like a early December. It was always on VH1 in early December. Always. We would like put up the Christmas tree, watch Jackson's The American yeah. Dream. Oh. Oh my, have you seen the video of Kiki Palmer doing Angela Bassett? Yes. To Angela Bassett? It's so funny. Oh my God. It's so good. I mean, if we needed yet another reason to love Kiki Palmer, but yes, I have seen that a hundred, like hundreds of times. It's, I was, it was my partner's first time seeing it and just, it was so nostalgic for me in this way that I was not expecting and I'm like, even, even the, even like Joe Jackson yelling at his kids, I'm like, oh, brings me back. <laughs> Switch off a tree, that scene. Yeah. When they break the guitar string, he wakes him up in the middle of the night into play. Oh my god! I mean, I, again, sorry, Allison, I'm guessing you haven't seen this. It's like, it is, it is inscribed on my DNA. Like VH1 has so much to answer for because they insisted on playing that so many times. Like yearly, at inescapable. Least. Wow. Okay, you need to listen to that podcast because they talk about that. Perfect. I will. Okay. Think twice. Sorry. Think twice. I'll 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 email you. But yeah, think twice. But anyway, sorry to take us so far afield. But I I wanted to get you know having a Detroit expert. It's like you want to hear what's going on with Motown in these books. Um, Allison, I know we have other melody questions. Like, what's on your mind? Yeah, if you if you could change something like pretty central to her stories, like whether it would be the year shifting her forward or backward a little bit or taking out singing, like if you were able to go back to that drawing board, would there be something that you would want to change to kind of create a character that would be more compelling, just different to tell another kind of Detroit story? Like what would be interesting for you if you could jump into that process? So a couple of things come to mind. So if I'm sitting there at American Girl and I'm like, hey. You're in charge. I got this idea. It's a girl from Detroit. I think I would do one of two things. I would either push her forward a few years mm. Um, mm. because you can still write in the civil rights angle and the Motown angle. But I think also it would be interesting to see how the 67 uprising would have affected mm. her. Um, just talking to people who were there at the time, it's amazing the stories that have come up and like the complicated feelings, no matter who they are. Or I would have pushed it back a little bit to the 1940s and talked mm. a little bit about how the Great Migration affected Detroit and specifically in terms of the factory work that was happening in and around Detroit. Um, it was a city that blew to, uh, it was a city that ballooned up to 2 million people during the 1940s. And there was a lot of tension because of the fact that a lot of folks were coming from the South and there were a lot of black and white folks and there was developments happening in terms of redlining and then covenant agreements and mm -hmm. the building of the Burwood Wall, which is a wall um, up near Eight Mile in Detroit that is supposed to separate two neighborhoods so that nobody could know that other people of different ethnicities were living near them. I think it would be interesting to hear about America's story through those lenses as well. I think that 1963 puts us firmly in this very tumultuous time, but a time where it's very easy to kind of remove yourself from some of the bigger questions about what's happening in the North as well. Hmm. Do you remember when Melody came out? Like, do you think other people like in public history in Detroit or just people that, you know, in your orbit, did they also feel similarly like Melody was placed in the right moment? Or do you think there was like a broader feeling she should have been pushed forward or backward? I think a lot of people were just excited to have a Detroit story on a national stage yeah. that wasn't so focused on violence and the difficult things that are happening in Detroit and were happening in Detroit. So I think everyone was like, yay, we get to talk about this, this cool stuff. Yay, we get to talk about the first time Martin Luther King gave the I Have a Dream speech, that sort of stuff. 
Do you think Eminem has ever been asked if he has purchased a Melody doll for his daughter? Important question. You know what? No, but I think that he needs to be asked. I think it's very important for us to know. Um, I do know that he, for a fact, that he has been to the Henry Ford Museum. So I know he's interested in the history, but whether or not he has gone as far as to purchase Melody, I am not sure. Whoa. Something that like stuck with me was learning about the history of music beyond Motown in Detroit and seeing that part of either an exhibit or a gallery in the city was funded by Kid Rock, whose yes. given name oh escapes me. But Robert something. If you had Kid Rock or Eminem money or even like founder of American Girl money and you started a Detroit museum, like what would be a centerpiece exhibit? Like you have endless resources and you have Kid Rock at all giving you unattached funds. Like you can do anything you wish. Like what would that look like? I think having a museum that focuses on the different groups that have immigrated to Detroit would be very cool. Um, I would keep the music exhibit that Kid Rock funded. He no longer funds it. I just want to say that. Yes, he did uh, stop funding that in 2019 or 20. I'm not sure which one off the top of my head, but I remember that being a big announcement at work once. but do we know why or is it like an only God knows why situation? It was I think it was around the time where he was having some frustrations with the way people were talking about him in Detroit, to put it kind of lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But then also the like contract was up for the exhibit. So I think he just decided not to renew his sponsorship. Um but I think a, a museum that would focus on the immigrant communities as a whole that have come to Detroit um, would just be really great. There's, of course, there's one about African-Americans. The oldest African-American history museum in the United States is actually in Detroit. Uh, there's one focused on the Greek American community in Detroit, which is fairly big. That's where we get our big square pizzas from and our Coney dogs. But I think a more comprehensive look at everybody who's ever been there would be fantastic. That's a great idea. I'd love to come to your museum. <laughs> Thank you. It will be in Samantha Parkinson's house. Oh, um, wow. What a trip. Interesting like... you would make the museum about Detroit <laughs> and New York, but I like your outside the box thinking. Well, I think we're going to move the house. Yes. So we're going to bring the house to Detroit. Yeah. yeah. Once we get our timeshares, we'll just pick oh, it up wow. and move it while we're there. I want you to picture You're like, like a China that contract. It's not a pyramid, but it's a triangle, right? So some people have more time and some people have less time in the house, but like all of you are part of forming that shape. All right. Like, I just feel like I'm coming out of this agreement with like, Mary, you can be here for like one hour on like a Tuesday. But it'll be the best Tuesday of your life. (laughs) Kayla. It's so rough. Oh my God. I I trust you to be like the person who hires, you know, the support staff at the front desk that like pushes the hard sell. I did trick. uh, Trick is the wrong word. I did not know. We did accidentally stay at a timeshare once and the sell was hard. It was hard to get away from. If you recall in Virginia, we were pitched pretty hard to actually buy a timeshare at a baffling hotel resort. At a truly baffling resort, we were on a trip involved in writing the book. And, you know, I didn't know that we were like, I want to say it's not, it was like, what is beyond a hard sell? That's what we experienced. Like at a certain point, I'm like, am I a Scientologist now? Like it was so (laughs) strong. Like I, and there was like, we have a million pools. None of them are ever open. Don't get attached. But of course you should join up because of the pool access. I don't envy people who have to do that job, but you know what? I bet they they would have thrived in like 1890 is what I, yes. my opinion is. Wow. I mean, I just feel scared because that almost worked on me in Virginia. And I feel like being a part of this imaginary timeshare is already like playing a taking a toll on my mental health. So like you guys, like you could take advantage of my financial life, like. <laughs> I'd walk away with nothing and I wouldn't even know about it probably till a few months later. So 
Now I'm scared. That's that's me now for the rest of this episode. We can, I still can't believe we have a Kid Rock reference on this episode. Like, Allison, why did you do that to us? I do feel as though part of what was compelling to me about Melody was I had these kind of different ideas about Detroit in my mind. And they did feel very sort of binary, right? It's like I knew about Motown. And then on the other hand, I feel like when 8 Mile came out, it was a cultural event. Like it was an event that people went to go see that movie. People had the posters, the album, the soundtrack. Like for some reason, I think for like one summer, we were convinced that knowing Marshall Mathers biography was essential, right? Like we had to know things about him and then kind of going into Melody's worlds, which tells us something very different. It's striking to hear you talk about how there was literally a wall, because to me, I can't imagine overlap between those two things because pop culture has showed me like, these are two very different stories, despite being neighbors in a sense, right? Yeah, I mean, in some ways you can't have Eminem, you can't have Eight Mile without a melody existing. I mean, what do you? What is your opinion of Eight Mile? Like, feel free. <laughs> um, I think it's a good movie. Um, I don't necessarily love the way it shows Detroit, but I also think that's Eminem's truth and not my truth. So mm-hmm. I won't begrudge Eminem his truth. I mean, I know that maybe you're a little fuzzy on the events of book two, like suffice it to say, she's a backup singer for her brother at one point at Motown. And, you know, her sister goes to Mississippi for Freedom Summer, breaks her wrist in a way that's never fully explained to us or to our satisfaction, comes home. I mean, just giving you some cliff notes here. But like, if you knew that that's sort of where Melody, where we leave Melody and she makes a community garden in her neighborhood, which is really cool. It's like a great generational kind of project. If you had to push your story ahead with this story already having happened, you get to like zoom ahead. You're hired as the ghostwriter for American Girl. What are, what are her teen years like? Like if we're putting her 1972 or something, like where do you see her story going? Okay. I think Melody would have A, probably gone to one of the great high schools in Detroit at the time. Um, I think that she would have been profoundly affected by the events of 1967 um, and that it would have pushed her towards pursuing uh, a degree in law and like thinking about how she can use her talents as a musician to help push social change. She's in the perfect place to do that. But I think she would have like realized like, hey, I can sing over here and then I can work on justice over here in a professional capacity. She definitely strikes me as the type who would have gone to an HBCU um, and then maybe gone to Harvard or University of Michigan for law school and returned to Detroit and run on the city council. And come back to local government. Back to local government, trying to get us to the roots of the problems that are happening in our community. Love that. And then she puts out a poster where she makes a pun on roots because she's like, remember, I made my community garden when I was like literally nine years old. I've always been about this. Vote for me. Exactly. And everyone is like, Melody is the best member of the city council. (sighs) Wow. What if she like writes and sings her own campaign song? I think that would be great. Um, Also, she would definitely write jingles for the local news station because that was a big thing in Detroit in the 80s and 70s. Really? Yes. What was that about? Um, I think it was just a point of civic pride and trying okay. to make people feel excited. And yeah, she would probably be singing that. Wow. I love that. That was a great, I mean, I know we kind of put you on the spot, but you nailed it. I want to read that book. Please look forward to it. I'm in real life. I'm actually uh, writing a Kit Kittredge fan fiction about her in the fifties. <gasps> yeah. Oh, what's she up Why to? Why did you lead with this? Oh my God. Are you willing to talk about it? Yes. I just started it. But um, the idea is that she's like, it's the late forties, early fifties. And she moves to Greenwich village and like works for a woman's newspaper. Oh my God. I love this so much. Who comes with I mean, her? Like, are you bringing yeah. other characters or is she kind of on her own? I'm having her on her own, but my ideas, but part of the idea is like, she'll like meet Ruthie, who is an aged stage actress. Who, of course. Who's like the mother of the neighborhood and things like that. Like, I'm very excited about it. 
I see like Rebecca coming out at some point just being like, it's not a union job. Like, don't yes. do it. Yes. Oh, my God. That would be phenomenal. I love all these worlds colliding. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. You're going to have to share that with us when you're done with it. Will do. You know, so speaking of like we're having you spin out fictions, like if you if American Girl was like, you know what, we're not done with Detroit. We're doing a, a girl set in 2023. Like, what is her story? What are the events shaping her books? Oh, my goodness. Okay. 2023 Detroit American Girl. Um, I think she's dealing with some of the pressures of gentrification. Um, Her neighborhood's changing. Suddenly there's expensive grocery stores and the house that her grandmother has lived in since the 50s. She can no longer afford to live there. And I think that that would be a really big push for her. And I think also just how much Detroit has this wonderful, diverse, fun atmosphere in general. So she would probably still be doing cool things like going to African World Festival or hitting up great museums or eating fantastic Mexican food in Mexican Village. Wow. So this is going to double as a tourism pressure. (laughs) That's what I'm hearing. (laughs) Sounds very good. Now you do have a book that people can read. I'm wondering if you could tell people a little bit about your novel and kind of where that came from. Yeah, for sure. So I wrote a gothic horror novel called These Bones, which is set in the first half of the 20th century in Illinois in a African-American community adjacent to a white community. And there are different monstrous elements, but I always like to tell people, we find out the real monsters we meet are the racism we met along the way. Um, mm. And just as a, as a public historian and a writer, I was just really fascinated about stories where people had these great communities that were lost over time. Some of them due to good things like integration, some of them due to the loss of jobs and things like that. And I always think about this one story core story where this young African-American man who was growing up in the 1950s in, I believe, Alabama and Brown versus Board of Education comes down. And rather than integrate the schools, the town fathers decided to move the factory that was in the town out of the town so that it would force the African-Americans to move out of the community so that they wouldn't integrate in the schools. And that was just such a profoundly moving story to me that, that they would just sabotage their entire industry in this town just to prevent progress, but also the loss of a beautiful community that was living there. And that kind of really rocketed me forward into writing this book. Wow. I mean, now, of course, I need to pick up your book. Like, this is it sounds like you have a really special way of like looking at history and finding using fiction to explore it in a way that is really kind of demonstrating your skills as a public historian. Like, do you think of your fiction writing as public history work? I really do in some ways. I think of it as using the skills that I have acquired as a public historian and placing them into spaces that might not be factual, but are definitely real and true. And you work with uh, young people now around writing and kind of like inspiring young writers. A lot of people, you know, a kind of cool surprise to us, like a lot of people kind of listen to this show as they're figuring out what they want to do as a career. So it's great for them to hear from curators and people who do all, you know, different manner of work. How did you come into that position? Um, I Basically, I had moved from being a public historian and, and I started out volunteering at a museum and that turned into working with kids at a museum. And now I work with kids full time in creative writing and my experiences as a public historian kind of informed my move into working as a creative writing instructor. If someone was listening in there and even not a young person, but someone wants to change career paths or whatever, and public history really speaks to them, like, do you have advice for anyone who's interested in working in public history? Absolutely. Um, I think the two to three things, or I think I've got two pieces of advice. One is 
if you're interested in making that move, find some time to volunteer at a smaller museum where they need help because a lot of small local places don't have enough people to be able to tell the stories they want to. And having a volunteer there, even if you're just there once a week, it will give you the skills you need to move into public history, but then also it will help out a community that might need it. And the other thing I always tell people is that a lot of the storytelling in public history is learning how to be yourself while telling the story um, Mm. and helping people understand how they fit into the narrative of history. Um, So if you're interested and passionate about a piece of history, think about the ways that you fit into that story and how other people might fit into that story. I really love that. And I think like in some ways, reading an American Girl book is such a compliment to that, right? Because you're reading the history while you're figuring out your own story or who you are. So it's sort of like the other side of that practice. Absolutely. That will be my third piece of advice. Read American (laughs) Girl books. You'll learn a lot. What's your favorite American Girl book? Oh, wow. This is complicated. Listeners, she has her hands up, almost prayer pose. You're really thoughtful right now. I think that it is Happy Birthday Kit. Wow. Or, and I cannot remember what this is, what it's called, but one of the History's Mysteries books where they're at the Highlander School, um, and Eleanor Roosevelt comes to meet it. I can look it up in a second too, but one of the history mystery books, they're at the Highlander oh School. God. It was so cool. I absolutely loved it. I need to find that book. The Kit Mysteries are very good. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Okay. I need to get involved on all of this. I feel like left out of the loop. Maybe this will come up at our timeshare. We can have a little book club meeting. Absolutely. That will be our weekly happy time the hour that i'm allowed to be there (laughs) then we can just talk about these books we have to train the next generation of writers so they can write an american girl book about us in our american girl house that's kind of the end game right like it all has to (laughs) yeah mary and i just recorded our episode where we decided to cohabitate with tamagotchis and it did not go well so they are not our future in terms of readership or authorship. So we have to rely on children. I think that Tamagotchis are a little more complicated than children having worked with them for a while. Thank you. This is 1000% the affirmation we needed because (laughs) we were not in a good place. I'll say that. I was like, wow, I thought permanently. I have mine here still. And it's like the battery's fully out of it. I was like, I can't, I'm logging off. They're, they're, they're way too much. Thank you. That's, I mean, this is the piece I needed from this conversation. (laughs) Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, we just so appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Like your experience is so interesting to hear about. And we just want to encourage everyone to go buy your book because we have timeshares to invest in and great stories to tell. And we hope that you will share your fanfic with us so that we can share it with people if you're open to it, or at least just let me read it. That's where I'm at. I will definitely share the fanfic with you guys. And thank you guys so much for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. If you would like people to find you or to follow you, is there a best place to do that? Yeah. So um, you can check me out on my website, which is kc-rights.com. And then you can also find me on Instagram at Kayla.c.author. And I post kind of infrequently, but you will get to see my very cute dog. So. And what's your dog's name? Her name's Lucy after Lucy Pevensey. Wow. Oh my God. Incredible. All right. Well, thank you so much. I mean, we're just so appreciative of you taking the time and this was just such a fun conversation. Thank you for engaging my Motown questions and, you know, Hopefully, you know, we'll be, I don't know if we'll be appearing in one of your fanfics, but we'd certainly (laughs) love to be reading it. And maybe you'll be in ours. Who knows? Um, Allison, where can people find the show if they want to ask questions and send along questions for us to ask Kayla and get answers to? Probably the best place is to reach out to us via email. Uh, You can also write to us at our PO box that's on our website. Uh, Dolls Lives Podcast is on Instagram. We're also on that other letter website run by Elon Musk. So we are all over the place. And Mary, where should people find you? 
please find me at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram. Feel free to DM me. I love hearing from people. I will get back to you. Sometimes it takes me a minute, but I like truly howl with laughter at some of the stuff people have sent me that does involve Carly Kloss appearing at Taylor <laughs> Swift's concert. Not in the VIP you know, tent. Once you do that deep dive, then you DM me and then I start sharing stuff with you and it will actually make sense. Perfect. I'm so excited. Okay. Thank you. Allison, where can people get in touch with you about Carly Class or other related topics? I'm at Allison Harix on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, you know, on all the things like I'm on water talk, you know, if that makes any sense to you. So <laughs> wow. Find me anywhere. Okay. That's powerful. <laughs> all right. Thanks everyone. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.